You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Sorry, you all at home don't know the weird thing that just happened here. Um, the teaching text this morning comes from Luke 24, 50 to 53. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, friends. Uh, 12 years ago, I moved to New York City to start a youth ministry that was serving impoverished immigrant families in the Lower East Side. Um, We rented a basement uh, there in the East Village uh, from a church, started volunteering in various organizations that were doing uh, good for potentially the most overlooked population of our city long before I ever thought of it or anything like that. I remember prayer walking through the housing projects early in the morning, every morning. I went uh, about youth work from about 9 a.m. until 2 p.m. I worked at a restaurant in the East Village from 2.30 p.m. till about 1 a.m., which is mostly how I paid the bills in those early days. And I learned a ton. I volunteered an after-school program. Uh, I was one of the leaders of a photography extracurricular, despite barely knowing how to use my iPhone camera. Uh, And I befriended this one teacher who is an extraordinary woman with such a heart to know and love and serve the students and the families that she worked with in the name of Jesus. And she invited me into all the relationships that she had cultivated. And so youth work looked a whole lot like attending family barbecues and visiting bodegas with food stamps and sitting in homes with a couple bedrooms, but eight to 10 family members all packed in to live in them and occasionally being called on to mediate in a violent family dispute where then I would be going through a 12-year-old kid translating to her parents what we were talking about in a pastoral counseling session. It was pure chaos. And it was also wild and beautiful in the way I imagine all of Jesus' escapades probably were and still are. And a couple years in, we're meeting in that church basement on Wednesday nights, and we had somehow become the largest youth ministry in Manhattan, which sounds so much more impressive than it was when I say it in a room like this one. That meant very little. Um, But all of it, every single bit of that was built on the relational generosity of this one teacher who taught me so much about what it means to love for the long haul. And we were like in that together. We're thick as thieves. And it was around that exact same time that completely out of nowhere, for reasons that I still don't entirely understand, she just turned on me. And she told everyone who would listen uh, that my character was poor. She questioned my motives. She gossiped about me to the other volunteers within the ministry, to the parents of those kids, even to the kids themselves. I had three separate meetings with her trying to sort out what was going on and where it was all coming from. And she berated me, didn't question me, berated me with accusation. 
And uh, I was just still kind of plugging away at the same mission, but now I've got these kids, these teenagers who've come to faith in this ministry coming up to me on Wednesday evenings after our youth group to say, Tyler, this teacher told me this about you. Is that true? I didn't sleep through the night for months during that time because she was like a sister. I mean, she had driven cross country with a couple of those kids in her car to attend mine and Kirsten's wedding. And we had, she had an open door policy in our house and we had the same in hers. And then she just changed her mind about me. And I really wasn't sure what prompted it or how to make sense of that. And so I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would lay there seeing the highlight reel of her accusations playing in my head. I could hear them rattling around and echoing inside my brain. And I would just lay there asking myself, is that true? Like, is that true of me? Is that who I am? And if it is, then how do I fix it? How do I repair something so broken if I don't even know how it got broken in the first place? And so I just carried that quietly. I, I didn't want to slander her, and so I just kind of buried it. But personally, I was really unable to stand up under the weight of it. And then around that time, a mentor of mine, a former mentor of mine, Caleb, he caught wind of this through a third party and kind of got caught up on what was going on. And he didn't uh, ask me what happened or how all of that was affecting the ministry or anything like that. He just sent me a text, and he said, I need to buy you lunch today. Can you meet me? And that's how I end up at this like crowded restaurant on 23rd Street just off Madison Square Park and we sit down and Caleb just opens a Bible up on the restaurant table and he says, bow your head. And um, puts his hand on my back and just right there just starts reading the Psalms over me one after another and I'm weeping and he just finishes a Psalm and he says, Tyler, this is who you are. And he starts the next psalm, and he finishes and says, Tyler, this is who you are. And then he started to say aloud the things that she had said about me. And then he would just read a prayer of David right after that and say, Tyler, this is who you are. This is who you are. That, what happened to me at that lunch table that day, there's a name for it. Blessing. Then he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany. He lifted up his hands and he blessed them. What exactly was Jesus doing when he lifted up his hands and why did it fill them with joy? Because after the blessing, there's still fugitives hiding out in an upper room afraid they're going to be executed the same way that he was. And he's going away with the promise to send his spirit, but the absence starts now and the gift is nowhere in sight. And, and all that they can do now is pray and wait, but now in their human imagination, something has ballooned and it's joy that has swallowed up all the fear they felt before. So what did Jesus do? What did he say? And why on earth did it work? <laughs> I mean, why was it that so important to Jacob and Esau, which one of them received their father's blessing? And why was the fatherly blessing of Isaac so important to Joseph after he had climbed the ladder to royalty? Why would his aging, impoverished father's words still carry so much more weight than the affirmation of the king of the world? And why did God give the priest Aaron direct words to speak in blessing over the wandering Israelites and tell him to make sure that every priest that comes after him knows them verbatim and keeps on speaking them? See, we use the word blessed today or blessing pretty much exclusively if someone sneezes or ironically on social media, like just got a new Ferrari, hashtag blessed, that sort of thing. That's, 
So why was blessing such a big deal back then and why isn't it now? Is this just some sort of old-fashioned superstition we have no use for anymore or is it something more? The Old Testament uh, uses the Hebrew word barak for blessing, which literally means to speak the intention of God or to be happy with where you are. In the New Testament, it's the Greek eulogia, which means to speak larger or well of, to speak the intention of God on someone. More recently, Dietrich Bonhoeffer offered this definition, blessing is the visible, perceptible, effective proximity of God. In other words, it's the felt experience of God's presence as you go about your day-to-day life. And occasionally it happens at a dinner table with friends or in a conversation with a coworker, or even just for like a warm glance from a stranger. Blessing, that's what I wanna talk to you about today. And I wanna talk about it through these three lenses, understanding, receiving, and becoming. So first, understanding blessing. We can't actually talk about blessing without first talking about cursing, because unfortunately, Everyone I know is more well acquainted with cursing than they are with blessing. I mean, even just among this room, I would imagine that far more of us have a painful personal memory rush back to mind when I talk about the accusations of that woman I served alongside than have a beautiful memory rush back to mind when I talk about Caleb blessing me with the Psalms in a restaurant. And that's because everyone, everyone I've ever met has more experience with cursing than they do with blessing. And cursing comes by many names and in many forms. Wounds are experiences we have with others that hurt us in a way that doesn't heal. So wounds haunt us and we live from them whether we want to or not. It's me lying awake at 3 a.m. with an accusation reel playing, suddenly unsure of who I am. That's a wound. And I've got mine and you've got yours. Lies, uh, lies define us because we take lies in and they live in our imaginations and then every other thought that comes into our psyche gets filtered through that lie. Like I can still remember the first day of fourth grade because I had Mrs. Smith uh, for my teacher and she was reading off the roll call and she said, Staten, are you Josh's brother? Oh, I love Josh. She had had him two years prior in class. I love Josh, I'm so glad we have another Staten in this class. Several hours later that afternoon, I had taken her desk chair, like her rolly desk chair, and I was using it as a scooter across the back of the classroom. And I still remember her screaming across the classroom, you are nothing like your brother. (laughs) I can still hear it exactly like she said it. And that's kind of funny, except In preparation for this talk, I read this one sociological study that said that the most accurate way to determine an adult's emotional health and sense of well-being is how popular they were in the third grade. (laughs) With honesty, I lived a lot of my adolescent life uh, driven in some sense in a private rebellion against being identified with my brother. I needed to create my own identity for myself that was separate and different and apart from him. What's that? That's a lie that every other thought in your mind gets filtered through and I've got mine and you've got yours. Then there's idols. Idols are false attempts to heal that lie. They are misguided efforts to find an antidote for the way the lie makes me feel. Every single idol is a good desire misdirected. It's a desire for blessing taken somewhere other than God. So the most famous idol is probably the Exodus calf. God sent 10 plagues, he parted a sea. He literally appeared as a pillar of fire guiding the Israelites, Google Maps style, through the wilderness, to the promised land. 
But now Moses is up on this mountain. He's getting instructions from God for the next leg of our journey, and so we're down here getting restless. Who's gonna tell us that we're okay? Who's going to show us the way? Who's gonna teach us what to do with all this newfound freedom now that we've been set free from slavery? What do we do with ordinary hours on ordinary days? See, the people are now idle and directionless, and so they reach for blessing, but they reach in the wrong direction. That's the emotional story that lives beneath, let's build a cow statue and worship it. Sex and success, those are the most obvious idols of our time. So we can so easily shrug off kneeling down and praying in front of a bronze heifer. But within the modern person, there's an unhealthy obsession with sex and success. Both of them are romanticized, not for what they are, but for the blessing that they supposedly provide the recipient. And there's this unconscious belief within the modern psyche that these things, one or the other, or some combination of the two of them, will provide the blessing that we so desperately want. And then finally, an idol that that grows to maturity within a person, we call that an addiction. That's when an idol is allowed to rule. And that can be a substance, or it can be pornography, or it can be workaholism. It's some kind of good desire, a desire for a good thing that gets misdirected, and it's bent in the same way again and again and again until it owns you. That's cursing. And now that we understand it, and maybe even begin to recognize it within ourselves to some degree, we can more easily know blessing. On the Bible's opening page, creation and everything in it is blessed. After every day of creation, God says the same phrase, and God saw it, and it was good. And Genesis 1 is written in the form of Hebrew poetry, and blessing is the chorus. God creates, blesses, creates, blesses, creates, and blesses until the sixth day when God creates people and then says, and it was very good. That's an upgrade. It's a super blessing given to people. So blessing is the chorus of the story. It's the refrain until Adam and Eve sin, and all that was blessed gets infected by a curse. This is Genesis chapter three. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. So creation itself is cursed. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Then there's a relational curse in the space between people. God goes on to acknowledge individual curses now alive within both the man and the woman. A curse is a rejection of blessing. It's an attempt to earn the blessing that I was freely given in the first place. And regardless of what you think about the Genesis account of forbidden fruit and talking snakes, we all feel the curse that it describes. We all feel the curse of personal sin. Hebrews chapter 12, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You living at peace with everyone? Everyone? See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. So we've all made personal choices. We've all rebelled in our own ways that we cannot fix or take back or go back and change. And then there's an inherited curse, or what we normally call the curse of generational sin. 
Exodus 34, the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible, says, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love for faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's where most people stop reading because that is the good part. But it does go on, God keeps speaking. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. That's the good part too, but it's gonna take us a little longer to get there. See, what it's saying is that we all live with unique versions of family dysfunction. Like, I don't wanna go home for the holidays. I don't wanna deal with my family and, ah. Oh. And family secrets, like maybe you've just recently found out about sexual abuse that's lived within your family but was kept hidden under the rug for decades. We all deal with family sin, like dad's alcoholism or mom's infidelity or grandpa's anger or a long line of divorce or just uh, my family's tendency to prioritize productivity over people that seems to get handed on one generation after another. The curse gets passed down through our families. And if you don't believe me, just try doing a genogram and you will trace this particular brand of dysfunction that runs through your family line, and then most humblingly of all, you will recognize it living within you right now. See, we live under this curse called sin. We inherited it through generations before us. We chose it for ourselves in personal ways, both big and small, and we've heard it spoken over us in condemnation by others. And as a result, we all carry wounds, lies, idols, and addictions trying to medicate the curse. So how does God deal with the curse that we can numb temporarily or soothe, but we're powerless to actually cure? He blesses again just like he did at first. He restores the original blessing in the middle of a cursed creation. Genesis chapter 22. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. That's the biblical story of blessing. And it's really important that we understand it. Like we need to get the facts straight here. But understanding is limited to cure us. For that we need to be able to receive the blessing. And we receive blessing by seeing, speaking, and sacrificing. It's one thing to understand his blessing, it's quite another to receive it. So the way that we receive the blessing of God is first by sight or by being seen by God. And I know this experience. I see it in my kids every time I go to the playground. Because every time I go to the playground with my kids, it's this, Dad, watch me, watch me, Dad, watch me, watch me, watch me, Dad, watch me. It's that over and over. Every kid wants to be seen, wants to be noticed. And so did each one of us all the way from childhood. So as a father, one of the greatest ways I can bless my children is just to see them. Buddy, you did all the monkey bars? That was amazing, that's blessing. And as a father, one of the most subtle but very real ways that I can curse my children is to be scrolling my phone while they scream for me to watch them. And we don't grow out of that need to be seen. As an adult, you feel it every time you walk into a room. Every time you walk into a room, you immediately become aware of the people in that room who are blessing you and the people who are cursing you. 
Uh, just think about a party that you walk into and you don't know anyone at the party and you've got that kind of uncomfortable feeling as you're opening the door to this like friends of a friend's apartment and you walk in and there's a sea of faces you don't recognize and then all the way across the room you make eye contact with your best friend who you had no idea would be here. And immediately, without saying a word, just in the way that you lock eyes with one another, you're able to both say to each other, I'm so glad you're here. Let's meet up over there. Right, what is that? What is that feeling? It's blessing. Because you step into a space and suddenly something happens that makes you say, I belong here. I'm home. I'm a part of this place. Now think about the same party, but you walk in and it's that same sea of faces you don't know, but you lock eyes across the room with someone that you've had a falling out with and it's never quite been resolved. And you both see each other and instinctively you divert your eyes. And the whole night you stay in that social setting and you never actually interact with one another. You you never breach it or have some big blow up or anything like that, but you never lose consciousness of where that person is in the room because you're doing a careful dance to avoid each other the whole night, feeling the tension that exists between the two of you with every move you make. What is that that's cursing? And it happens just by the way you're seen and the way you see without saying a word. Sometimes the greatest obstacle to receiving God's blessing is the way that we're seen by others. In the memoir, The Other Wes Moore, uh, there's this really moving scene uh, when he, the writer, spent six months living in the slums of Cape Town. And in, in the indigenous African culture that lives in those slums, teenage boys between the ages of 16 and 18 go through an initiation rite where they spend a month living in the wilderness with the village elders. And they're taken through these ceremonies that initiate them into manhood. And then when they return from the village, the entire village will gather and throw a massive feast when everyone will celebrate and recognize them as men on their way to eldership within the village. And then for the 30 days following the feast, these young men will wear all white everywhere they go. And it's a sign of honor of what they carry around them and how they are then seen by others. And Wes a black man in his 20s from the Bronx is looking at this 18-year-old black young man dressed in all white, standing proudly and dignified and honored within his culture and in his city just by the way he's seen. And he's lamenting the fact that if you took that very same kid and you dropped him on the streets of the city that he lives in and the place that he calls home, he would typically be thought of as threatening and subconsciously dishonored just by the way that he's seen. And so sometimes the obstacle to receiving God's blessing is just the way that we're seen by others. And other times it's the way that we see ourselves. Let me read you a bit from Song of Songs. That's right, Song of Songs. It's last sermon, can't email me now. This is Song of Songs chapter one. Dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I'm dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards, my own vineyards I had to neglect. Now this is poetry, it can be difficult to interpret, but there's two obvious things going on here. The first one is shame, don't stare at me. 
see, this refrain of darkness that gets repeated leading up to that line, it has to do with the cultural standards of beauty in the ancient world at that time. I know what I look like, and I don't want you to see me like this. There's shame. But then there's also a story. My brothers made me work the vineyard, so I had no time to care for my own. In other words, here's the backstory and the explanation for what you see when you look at me. But the deeper story underneath that is, here's what I see when I look at me. And I'm afraid you see it too. She betrays the way that she sees herself. And then later in the very same poem, listen to the responsive voice of Jesus. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. You see, it's one thing to understand that God blesses in place of cursing. It's quite another thing to be seen by God, to receive that very blessing. We also receive his blessing by speech, by hearing what the blessing that he speaks over us. That's what was happening at that lunch table on 23rd Street with Caleb. He was speaking blessing to me, replacing the curse with spoken words of blessing. At the very beginning of the Gospels, Jesus went to John the Baptist to be baptized, and at his baptism, the audible voice of the Father echoed over the Jordan River and said what? You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So Jesus' ministry does not begin with miracle working or preaching or even cross-bearing. It begins with blessing, with receiving blessing from God, and everything we read in the life of Jesus follows from that blessing. And then finally, there's sacrifice, or when someone gives their life away for me. Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So one of the things that Jesus is doing on the cross is he's removing the curse from your life and taking it on himself and then he's blessing you with the blessing of his life. On the cross, Jesus was enduring physical pain. That, that is very much a part of it, but that's not all of it. He's also saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God has removed himself from Jesus' pain on the cross. He's bearing the full weight of the curse. He's taking it on himself. Why would he do that? To create a new line of humanity that walks in blessing, in the blessing of God, and not in the curse of sin and rebellion. There's really just one blessing that sometimes, not always, but sometimes still culturally happens in, in our world today. And that is asking a father for his daughter's hand in marriage. Like, sir, I'm here to ask for your and your wife's blessing, that kind of thing. And I do have some personal experience with that one. Um, I will never forget it. Many of you have met my father-in-law. I mean, he's a spiritual father to me now. I love him to death. Wasn't always like that. We've been through some awkward things together as well. So I, I secretly flew down to Nashville. Uh, he picked me up, we're on our way to lunch, and I was so nervous. I was more nervous about that than I was about the proposal. And so we're, we're driving to the restaurant and I'm squirming so much in my seat that I just asked him in the car ride on the way. <laughs> I was like, look, I gotta, just keep, I gotta get this off my chest. Here's what I'm here to talk to you about, man. And he goes, oh, so that's what you wanted to ask me. Hmm. and then changed the subject <laughs> and just took the conversation in a different direction, which was a brilliant play. It was such a mind game. 
then, then we get to the restaurant, so we're at this burrito place, and we go to sit down at the table, and of course, it is packed. I mean, there's people wedged at the tables right next to us, and I'm like, great. Everyone can hear every word of this brutally awkward conversation who's anywhere around us. And we sit down at this table in the midst of this really crowded restaurant, and he goes, Tyler, let's pray. And then extends both hands across the table, and I was like, And it was laughable to me then, and, and is a little bit now, but I also understand it a little bit more now. Because to me, I'm thinking, we gotta get this over with. I, I, surely this is gonna go fine. I, I think it's gonna, but to him, this was holy. It was Christ-like. Because I was asking for blessing. What did that mean? I, I was asking him to trust me with what he values most in this world. I was saying to him, Kurt, will you raise a daughter? Will you love her and protect her and sacrifice for her and delight in her? And then will you entrust her care to me? Some kid who's too nervous to ask at the restaurant? I was asking him to do the unthinkable and to do it with joy and, and happiness and good intention. I was asking him, will you be like Jesus? Who said this in John 15, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Here's the supreme kind of love. Give your life away so that someone else can have more life. There is no higher blessing than giving your life away, than offering some part of yourself to some undeserving person. And so here is the blessing that we are offered to receive in Jesus. I see you. I call you beloved. And I give you my life so that you can rediscover yours blessing. But at the end, the invitation is not only to receive blessing, but then to become the very blessing that we receive. Back to Genesis 22, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. That's what God said to Abraham. He blessed him to then become a blessing. Salvation, meaning the redemption of people and the restoration of this cursed creation, that is dependent on God's blessing entirely and not on ours. But how we respond to God's blessing can spread and share salvation. We can become blessing, like a walking, talking antidote to the disease that's infected all of creation. We can become good antibodies in an infected system. Psychologists tell us that the way that we judge others is actually a reflection of our own interiority. Meaning however harsh or gracious, however particular or generous you are with other people, you are typically equally harsh or generous with yourself. So you become a blessing outwardly to others by receiving blessing internally. That's the only way. Until you know at the very core of your being that you are blessed, you'll spread the curse. And if you want to know what it is that you're taking in, just pay attention to what it is that you're putting out. See, so we become a blessing the same way that we receive it, by seeing, speaking, and sacrificing. So we become a blessing by seeing others. Do you want to be divinely broken for the city of New York? Then just start with noticing people, just really seeing them. I mean, see the guy who's delivering your chicken shawarma in the rain during a pandemic and the homeless woman riding the train just to stay warm for a couple of hours, and your coworker who's got their whole identity hanging in the balance on this 
potential promotion. And the school kids who are spilling into the streets doing everything they can just to get each other's attention for a second. And your neighbor whose apartment reeks of weed 24-7 because they've never been captured by a vision of life that's greater than just escaping for another couple of hours. See, all of these unique people were created in the image of God and they're individuals on whom he desires to pour out blessing. Can you even imagine the heart of God over our city? I mean, the, the heart of the God who leaves the 99 to go in pursuit of the one. The God who sacrificed everything to lift the curse and then offered us every spiritual blessing in Christ. We can become a blessing as we learn to welcome people into this community. Because we bless or curse by the way that we welcome people in or don't. I mean, just think again about the felt experience of walking into that party. We all know the great difference between, hey, so great to see you, I'm so glad that you came, and when everyone just stays in their conversation clusters, and you walk into that party, and suddenly you're like someone that's been in a shipwreck, and every cluster is a life raft, and it doesn't matter which one you grab onto, you're just drowning, you gotta get in one of these things. See, if you feel comfortable in this church, that's power. It's power to extend blessing to others. By the way, you welcome someone, you either increase their dignity or their insecurity. You either highlight and draw the imago day that is within them or the curse that is within them. That happens every single time someone walks through the doors of a church on a Sunday. It happens every single time someone arrives to your community group, even if it's on Zoom. And it happens every single time you bump into someone from this church on the sidewalk and decide whether to pretend you didn't notice them or ask them how they're doing. If you feel comfortable in this community, that's power. Comfort in a community is currency. So, so how do you use power in a community that is founded on a sacrificial savior, a suffering king? You give it away. You spend it on others and you determine not to calculate the worth of that investment. You just bless people and you keep on blessing them without evaluating the results of what you're putting out. What is blessing like in the most practical sense? It's like this, hey, there's an open seat next to me, six feet apart from me, you know, or whatever. It's, it's do you have lunch plans? It's, can I introduce you to Amy? It's, do you wanna check out my community group? I'd love to help you get connected, that's blessing. We also bless others through our speech, by the words that we speak to others. Romans chapter 10 says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why? Why isn't it enough just to believe in my heart? I mean, the scripture says elsewhere that God knows our thoughts and our hearts, so why in the world does God need me to go through the formality of saying this out loud? Because blessing is a relational gift. And that means it's given and received through speech, not through thoughts. For example, I do. With those words, space is created between two people for a more intimate relationship. And of course, no one, when they say those words, is just deciding in that moment that they do. They're simply saying something out loud that has been true in their heart for some time now. They're acknowledging, but what happens is that when they speak it out loud, it makes something real between me and you, between us, that suddenly there's something real that's been created in the space between me and God, something real created in the space between me and you. And speaking out loud something that's true in my heart makes me vulnerable. 
in some way, I, the speaker, am now subject to your response and interpretation of the blessing that I've given. That's why it's so much easier to keep blessings in the secrecy of your own thoughts than to speak them out as words, because words make the speaker vulnerable. It's very easy to admire someone's character. It's very hard to say, I've always admired this about your character, because that makes me vulnerable. But thinking good thoughts about someone else doesn't bless them. It doesn't create greater freedom and redemption in a relationship. It doesn't make us an alternative community that's formed by an alternative story. And it does not magnify God's image in a brother or sister. You have to put thoughts on your lips for all that to happen. There was a school in the UK that conducted a social experiment on the power of affirmation where they held a mock IQ test and then shared the results publicly. And every test score was completely fabricated, and yet those with the top scores, every one of them saw significant improvement in their academic performance the next year. Simply by being told they were smart. They got smarter, which sounds crazy, but I've experienced something like that. I mean, when I was in college, I never would have imagined pastoring a church until another pastor named Brian Jones said, Tyler, man, I've told this story like 12 times before. I've never gotten emotional during it. It's like I'm in a fragile time in my life or something. (laughs) He said, Tyler, uh, I want you to preach uh, at this little gathering. I'm not able to make it. Then he drove me there, so I knew he was able to make it. And, (laughs) and, And I preached, and he took me out to this diner afterwards, and he sat across from me, and before we even ordered, he said, Tyler, you have the spiritual gift of teaching. And he just affirmed me and spoke over me at that table and changed the trajectory of my life. So as the church, we should be calling out gifts and future that we see in one another because there's unrealized gifts within this congregation and there are redemptive futures that are just waiting on the other side of vulnerable spoken blessing. You recognizing God's gifting and call in the life of someone else and then saying it out loud is a participation in the blessing work of Jesus. And on the other side of the coin, as it says in James 3, with the tongue we, pr- we praise the Lord God our Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. What does that mean for how you respond to your coworkers? Or for your email etiquette? Or for the tone that you take with your spouse, or your kid, or your roommate? or for that story or comment that you make at someone else's expense. St. Augustine famously kept a little sign on his dining room table reminding him not to gossip. It said, whoever thinks that he is able to nibble at the life of absent friends must know that he is unworthy of this table. Words matter. With our words, we participate in the cure of blessing or we're complicit in the spread of the curse. And then finally, there's sacrifice. We become a blessing most profoundly by giving our lives away for others. The way I think of it is absorbing the cost. On the cross, Jesus was taking on the curse for your sin and for mine, including the sins that we will never be able to name or acknowledge. So sometimes we bless others by speaking, and sometimes we bless others by not speaking. It's that offense that I've got every right to bring up, but I choose not to. I choose to give him space to make mistakes and not have to pay for them. 
or it's that amazing story that would crush at this table with this crowd, but the person that it's about, that it makes light of, isn't in our company. And so I hold back. And look, as an important caveat, blessing can happen by absorbing the cost, but enabling can happen by absorbing the cost too. So there is some spiritual discernment required here. But done right, sacrifice produces beauty. There's this term that artists use, negative space, to describe what's not there in a painting. So a great work of art includes both where I put the brush and where I don't put the brush. Because where I don't put the brush draws attention to the beauty that has been created. What an artist doesn't do is equally as important as what an artist does because restraint contributes to beauty. Ronald Rollheiser says to bless someone fully is to in some way die for him or her. John the Baptist blessed Jesus by giving away power, status, and reputation to him and ultimately by dying. Jesus blesses us by giving us his status and standing and ultimately by dying. And Jesus is unique among all teachers and prophets of all spiritual traditions in that his invitation is this, I have come to bring life and life to the full. Jesus wants to give me full life? Great! How? Whoever would save their life must lose it by sacrifice. That's how. You bless others at great cost to yourself and in the end you are the one that receives the greater blessing. It's a miracle. It's a mystery. But if you're skeptical, just try him on it. Rollheiser goes on to conclude, when we act like God, we get to feel like God, which sounds like heresy, except that Jesus completely agrees. He's echoing the sentiment of the pathway to full life. So I just wanna close uh, with receiving blessing. For the better part of this year, I've had this image seared into my imagination and I've held it in prayer again and again and again. It's a, of an old man in a nursing home on his last leg. His family gathered around him knowing it'll be any day now. Everyone who gets the blessing of living fully also gets to spend their final years at their weakest. In the last memories of every old man or woman, they're not the best version of themselves anymore. And biblically and traditionally, that's when a blessing is given. It's given when someone's lived a full life and now they're on their last leg ready to give away the fatherly blessing to the family line. Blessing in the most formal sense is that precise moment when every crack and flaw within a person is most visible. It's most on the surface of their life. And that's unfortunate for the blessing giver because you would like to present your best self and be remembered that way. And that image of that old man, that, that's how I have felt all year this year. I am as emotionally exhausted as I can ever remember being in my life. I feel like I've been running on empty for miles now. And I don't, I don't feel like myself. I haven't for a while. I'm not the friend I wanna be right now. I'm not the pastor I wanna be right now. I'm not the husband I wanna be right now. I'm not the father that I want to be right now. And so 2021 so far for me has been a year of just observing this massive gap that exists between who I am and who I really wanna be, who I intend to be, who I mean to be. And to whatever degree you have felt that gap, 
I'm sorry. I really am. I'm sorry for the ways that I've disappointed you or failed you as a friend or as a pastor or as a leader or as a teacher. And as I've held that prayer before God day after day and observed this gap between my desired self and my actual self, he's brought to mind all those Old Testament leaders who get to bestow a blessing in the most formal sense, like Abraham and Noah and Jacob and Moses and David. They all led Israel to these new places of deliverance and freedom, and they were all exposed as broken and flawed and very, very human in the end. All of their cracks were exposed by the time they gave a blessing. And that's actually a gift. It's a gift because it leaves no doubt that all the good that you've experienced was nothing more than the grace of God. And in the last seven years, I need to humbly but honestly say that I have had the privilege of getting to lead you to new places of blessing and deliverance and freedom in the presence of God, and it has been a joy. And this year, I pray that by God's grace, you will be blessed by my weakness far more than you were ever blessed by my strength. You'll be blessed by my brokenness, last of all, by my fragility, when every crack in me is most visible. I pray that my life would be to you a living spectacle, that he really has put this treasure in jars of clay to show that his all-surpassing power, it's given from God, it's not about us. Every blessing you have received in this community, it's come from him. And every blessing you'll go on receiving in this community will come from him. That image, that old man on his last leg, it's a reminder that I, on my best day, am a broken vessel, a cracked clay jar. So I want to say... I want to say thank you to you, Oaks Church Brooklyn, because you've been a blessing. As your pastor, I've been seen by you, and I've received the encouragement you've spoken to me, and you've all sacrificed in some way to walk this journey alongside me. And I want to ask you, church, for one thing. Will you become an equal blessing to your next lead pastor? Will you give them all that that you gave me? And on our last day together, as a figurative but sort of real old, somewhat senile man, I want to bless you. I hope you've been seen by me. hope you felt that. I want you to know that I've sacrificed for you and I've never for a second wondered if it was worth it because I've always received back way more than I've ever given out. And now I just want to speak words of blessing over you. That's what a benediction is. A benediction is a blessing and a sending. It's what Jesus was doing in our teaching text, and that's why it worked. He was blessing and he was sending the disciples. That's what filled them with joy. Joy even though all their circumstances were still a mess, and joy even though all they could do from here is pray and wait. And unfortunately, you weren't in the original 12, so you don't get Jesus directly. You don't have to settle for Jesus through me. But if you'll stand, I'd love to make the last words I speak to you in this form, words of blessing. Oaks Church, Brooklyn, my community, my friends, my family, 
You are a courageous and risk-taking people. May you never play it safe. May you never grow more acquainted with the power and presence of God on the other, or sorry, may you ever grow more acquainted with the power and presence of God on the other side of your fear, the other side of your comfort zone, the other side of your risk. May you live in the full inheritance he's prepared for you and may you never settle for a life for which there's any explanation other than Jesus. Church, you've grown young in a tragically old city. May you know the kingdom that bypasses the experts, the sophisticated, and the proud, the kingdom he promised to those who become like children. May you live by jaw-dropping faith and spread the attractive aroma of joy. May you become a people of prayer. You've poured out your affection to Jesus lavishly, wastefully like Mary of Bethany. You've prayed alone and together early in the morning and late at night. You've discovered his presence where illusions fall and the true self is found, where you are finally at rest, finally content, finally tasting bread that satisfies. May you increasingly know the love, power, and generosity of God, and may you inherit a fruitful harvest, the collateral damage of intimacy. You've grown into a people of compassion, mercy, and justice. May you not only pray prayers, but become prayers. May your hands touch the broken, your feet stand with the needy, your arms hold the hurting. May your lives cry, let your kingdom come. May your fellowship be an undivided fellowship where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, man nor woman, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And above all, through all, in spite of all, in the bumps and bruises, hellos and goodbyes, celebrations and disappointments, tragedies and triumphs, may you love one another. As Christ has loved you, go on loving one another. By this, the world will know that you belong to him, that your eyes are fixed on an eternal city, a forever home, and a true family. Go, go in peace. Go to love and serve the Lord.